So Roxy, when was one of the first times you felt like you actually fit in in New York? I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that I sort of feel like, especially the first year, I tried to purchase my way into feeling like I fit in. Mm. Like, what's a memorable purchase that you made that where it was like, I'm doing this to fit in or I'm doing this to (laughs) not look like a Midwesterner, even though you're not? A memorable one was... I was in a boutique in Williamsburg, of course, mm-hmm. and I bought a $500 leather jacket. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, for a leather jacket, that's kind of par for the course, <laughs> and it's kind of par for the course for a boutique in Williamsburg, but that is a lot of money to spend, like, on one jacket. Yeah, I'd never spent that much money on a piece of clothing before in my life and haven't since. I actually don't really regret that one now because I've worn it so much since then, seven years later, and I'm still wearing it. It's kind of a wardrobe trademark at this point. But I definitely feel like I spent way too much on clothes that first year. Do you have a secret expensive purchase? I do. Uh, Two summers ago, it was my birthday. And I was like, you know, I'm going to go into this Finnish design store in Gramercy Park called Marimekko. And they just have beautiful, like floral prints. And yeah, I just decided that I would let myself pick out a summer dress. And, uh, (laughs) you know, I I actually sent a photo of myself like in the dressing room to my mom. Oh, yeah. Like, what do you think? How much it cost? (laughs) Oh. I think I alluded to the fact that it was expensive and her response to that is always like, well, you're a working woman. (laughs) But, you know, I I probably haven't gotten as much use out of it as like your staple leather jacket. You know, that's more of a kind of classic thing to have, but it definitely makes me happy whenever I put it on. Sure. I mean, it may not have been a staple, but it's like a one of a kind piece. It's like a it's like art. Yes, and I feel like a painting when I'm wearing it. (laughs) From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City. We're a podcast from two single Christian women who moved to New York with ambition, dreams, and more than a little sass. (laughs) I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. Here on Saved by the City, we explore all the ways Heartland Christianity can flourish in the heart of Gotham. Speaking of art, one of (laughs) the most memorable fashion experiences that I have had in New York City didn't have anything to do with like anything I was wearing or saw in a store, but it was going to see this amazing gala exhibit a few years ago. And I'm sure you know which one I'm talking about. It's the Heavenly Bodies Met Gala exhibit from 2018. Oh my gosh, I went to see that too. It was so amazing. It was was nearly sacred. Mm Mm-hmm. What made it so meaningful for you? What stood out? Well, I think, you know, obviously, like fashion and religion are these two realms of human activity that we think of as like being diametrically opposed. Like right. fashion is considered worldly. Religion is of eternal things. Right. Obviously, a lot of fashion is about kind of pushing boundaries and being iconoclastic and religion Mm -hmm. is about keeping sacred things sacred. So I wanted to see how these two things came together. You know, some of the exhibit was featuring religious wear on loan from the Vatican. And some of it was featuring dresses from these high-end designers like Versace and Dolce and Gabbana. And what would it be like for like 
something from the Vatican and from Versace to mm-hmm. be in the same space. And so, as you said, you know, the first thing I noticed walking into the Met was how reverent the space yes. felt. Mm-hmm. You know, that's true for a lot of museums. You kind of have this quiet space with really tall ceilings and beautiful lighting, but it was just something about like the music and the layout. I think it was really meant to evoke this kind of religious awe, like you were stepping into a church. I don't know if you remember this, but a lot of the dresses were put up on these like high platforms, like maybe 10 or 12 feet above the floor so that you had to look up to see them. So your Mm -hmm. eyes were drawn toward the heavens, as it were. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I know that this exhibit got some flack in more conservative Christian, specifically like Catholic communities here in New York when it came out. Like, I think some people saw it as being profane, but I actually felt like the tone of the exhibit was pretty reverent toward the church. It felt that way for me too. I'm actually like, as you're talking, looking back at some of my pictures from it and like even just seeing them as sort of transporting, there's this one with like all this amazing like gold embroidery and these crystal like crown and this big like kind of gold tree branch crown thing on top. And it's so amazing. Yeah. And so the awe for me, like walking through the museum, it was at both the Met Fifth Avenue and the Cloisters, which is literally like a church. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just about like the religious content. I was just so amazed by the handiwork Mm. exhibited in each piece. It's like hundreds or thousands of beads and stitches and this perfect symmetry and fit. And I feel like, you know, as most of us do, like we buy mass-produced, ready-made clothing. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to forget the kind of intricate work that goes into creating clothing. And just the, yeah, the human creativity on display kind of reminded me of like the feeling of all you might get listening to a symphony or watching a play where there's a standing ovation at the end. Just like amazed at this human feat of creativity and excellence. Was there a, a piece that you remember really moving you? The one that I remember the most vividly is this Valentino evening dress that was at the Cloisters and... It's this light blue floor-length dress with pastel accents. And across the front is an image of Adam and Eve in front of like a tree, like the knowledge of good and evil. And they're surrounded by animals and flowers. And I probably stood there for you know 15 minutes mm-hmm. just like taking in all the details. I doubt that many other <laughs> people at the cloisters were like led to theological musing <laughs> by this dress for me, it kind of captured something about like the glory of being human, of being made in the image of God and that beauty wherever we find it, even in this like high-end couture dress, that kind of beauty, I think, ultimately points us to the sacred and to like the the maker of beauty. Mm. So I felt like I had gone to church that day. I mean, (laughs) even though I hadn't, it was a museum. The experience was so awe-inspiring that it was like, you know, walking out of a a cathedral. Hallelujah. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) But I can 
see. Okay, so high couture fashion, it's meant to be art. So I can see how it's possible to find a sort of sacredness or spiritual significance there because of all the intentionality that goes into it. Mm -hmm. But what about street fashion? What about like what you and I wear? Do you feel any kind of (laughs) mystical experience when you pick out your clothes for the day? (laughs) So aside from the glory of sweatpants... (laughs) Yes, (laughs) pre-pandemic, when we actually were able to wear art on our bodies. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard when you work from home, very few people see you. It is hard to feel inspired. But, you know, there even during this time, there have been days where I've decided to, quote unquote, dress up, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe not wear a dress, but like really put some thought into what I'm wearing just to feel like a human. I think there is something about taking the time and energy to put thought into what you're wearing. And if it makes you feel good and it's comfortable and it's something you want to kind of like show off, I think that's tapping into a part of why clothing matters. Yeah. I mean, I I think you're right. In this strange time, (laughs) there is like a big difference between days where I like roll out of bed and like wash my face and then just sit at my computer opposed to like a day when I would get up and take a shower and put on some makeup and wear some decent clothes and then Mm -hmm. sit in front of the computer. And there is something about honor, like honoring Mm -hmm. ourselves. And I think growing up in a certain way, there's always such a like vanity put on the idea of looking good, but Mm -hmm. there really is also like something about saying my body matters and it's worth Mm -hmm. making it look as good as it can. And it also, I have found, you know, as we both work from home, like, yeah, there are days where I'm in my pajamas until noon, but I notice that the days when I actually like get dressed for the day, I feel like I work better because mm-hmm. I've like actually putting forth some effort and even changing clothes changes your mindset. Definitely. I mean, there's a reason why like you're not supposed to wear sweatpants to the workplace normally, <laughs> unless you work at like a sporting goods store. Right. I've definitely chilled out a lot when it comes to feeling like I have to fit in with my fashion since first moving here, but I still really enjoy it and I still really care and I still really enjoy like walking out on the streets of New York and getting inspired by other people's outfits and seeing what's trendy right now or what creative things people are doing with leggings or whatever, you know, (laughs) right now it's all leggings. I do think though that one of the lessons I had to learn early on in New York that sort of made me calm down is that you're pretty much never the most fashionable person nor the least fashionable person in any room you're in, in New York. (laughs) That is really true. And not just fashionable, but like, you know, smartest, most attractive, richest, you know, like (laughs) it, it cuts against a lot of facets of life and, you know, like knowing our Enneagram types, or at least I should speak (laughs) for myself. There's this impulse to want to be like the most fashionable or the shiniest. But I think I resonate with what you've said about getting older. There's something about just embracing your own style and Mm -hmm. not having to be the most fashionable, but just learning to be comfortable and feel good, not necessarily in comparison to other people. And there's something really freeing in being comfortable in your own skin. Yeah. One thing that actually helped me sort of hone in on my style was a trick I actually learned from a fashion blogger friend. She advises coming up with 
three adjectives mm. to describe your fashion style and then use those to help guide your purchasing decisions. So do you feel like you've landed on three adjectives for yourself? I think so. They evolve some, but I think so. So I have an idea. <laughs> mm-hmm. What if I took a stab at getting your three adjectives since I've known you for a while and I've seen a lot of clothing on you <laughs> and, and you can do the same for me. We take some time like to like write out these three adjectives for each other and then compare notes and see if we were in the ballpark at least. Let's do it. Okay. All right, go. <laughs> So here's what I think. Well, I was going to say colorful, but I think it's more like playful. Hmm. I think your wardrobe is often very playful. And even the the dress you were talking about that you got feels like sort of a playful, colorful piece. And then I would say this is a phrase, but still, I would say traditional with a twist. Hmm. You often have like a blazer, but it'll be a really funky color Mm -hmm. or like a shift dress, but it'll have like big polka dots on it or something. So I will allow it. And then I think feminine. Like I was looking at your Instagram before this <laughs> to get inspiration. <laughs> and like you had like a sweater that had kind of like puffy sleeves with like mm-hmm. little balls on it. And so mm-hmm. I think a lot of it, like your pieces tend toward sort of feminine structures. Like a softer look. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's actually... So what I wrote down for myself, I wrote kind of classic, which would be mm. the traditional... Yeah. But I also wrote down whimsical, which mm, would be the playful. playful. Whimsical is a better word for it. I like whimsical better. And then I also actually, this is like kind of a, a lame sauce one, practical. But mm. I, I do tend toward like, if given the choice, I'm going to choose a pair of shoes that I know <laughs> I can walk right. several miles in in New York. Right. I'm n- probably not going to put on the strappy heels very often. Right. Which is, I think, a pretty good lead in for you. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> no. <laughs> so, well, these are the three that okay. I, I came up with. Okay. So, my first word is actually two words. That's cheating, but individualist slash bold. Good. I think you are someone who walks into a room and people will look at and realize, like, she is her own person. Ooh. And that you <laughs> want to communicate that. I think in mm-hmm. your clothing and even like the way that you put pieces together, I often think like, oh, I wouldn't have thought of that, but that's super original, which is a third word, but it's still the first well, thanks. word. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> the second word is just vintage because I feel mm. like you have a fair amount of vintage clothing and like mm-hmm. bringing back pieces that have kind of this like good solid style from lots of different eras. Mm-hmm. And then the third word I came up with was romantic. Ooh. And I think feminine is probably related Mm -hmm. to that too. Like flowy things or floral things. I don't know if, do you own a lot of pink? I can't remember. Yeah. Kind of like a a particular pink. It's like a rosy, mauvey pink. Mm -hmm. With red hair, there's only a few pinks you can really get. Yeah. I just realized that when I said (laughs) pink, like, yeah. But okay. So how did I do Good. Well, it's interesting. Okay. So I wrote down edgy. 
mm-hmm. which I think goes with your first one. Mm-hmm. I usually have like a statement piece that's kind of edgy that I usually try to bring in. So it's like maybe my shoes are really funky or edgy or maybe mm-hmm. my like leather jacket or mm-hmm. a big funky ring or something. So like edgy slash funky. I really like funky silhouettes, like really boxy silhouettes or like Mm. I have this one like long dress that's just like totally straight and boxy but then it's got like slits up the side that are kind of like unexpected you know so I kind of like so that like edgy funky Mm -hmm. and then so I didn't know how to make this into an adjective but it's really (laughs) close to one of the things that you said which is I really like juxtaposing unexpected things so Mm -hmm. like wearing a floral long floral dress with a leather jacket or Mm -hmm. like denim with silk or masculine shoes with a really feminine dress Mm -hmm. and then I I actually wrote feminine for my third one which was funny because I gave it to you too but I like what you I like romantic better Mm. so I think you might have actually like replaced one of my words Mm -hmm. good job (laughs) I feel really good like if this were a newlywed game I feel like we pretty much aced it I think so. Or like yeah. in the ballpark, you know. Absolutely. Go us. What Good what job. is our prize? We're, we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> this this is the lesson from this time together. <laughs> we are friends. It seems pretty clear by now that we both enjoy clothing and Mm -hmm. we both put a fair amount of thought into what we wear. But I will say there's still some uncertainty and maybe even some guilt about just how much we should enjoy clothing and think about it. Uh, Yeah. I mean, so much of our faith, you know, talks about simplicity and about generosity and about being unselfish and, you know, don't worry about what you're wearing. Look at the lilies in the field, you know, like there's all these sort of ideas about fashion being very similar to vanity or a selfish thing and not necessarily like a good or virtuous way to spend your money or your energy. Yeah. And I certainly think you would find that reflected in a lot of Christian communities when conversations about clothing come up, right? Like there is this sense that it's an investment in something that won't last and we're to set our minds on things that are eternal and not worldly. And so much of fashion is tied up with the comparison and jealousy and acquisitiveness, right? (laughs) like consuming more and more and it'd be hard to find a biblical rationale for living that way. <laughs> right. And when you walk around New York City, the disparity of like the very wealthy and the very poor is so obvious. And fashion just seems to heighten that, you know, and, I, mm-hmm. and I'm like, get, I'm reminded of Bible verses of like women wearing pearls when there's all this inequality and injustice happening and being called out for that. Oh, shoot. I'm thinking, do I have any pearls? No, but I, yeah, I have an equivalent to pearls, I'm sure. Yeah. (laughs) Well, next up, we're going to talk to someone who spent a lot of time wrestling through these questions. Whitney Bauck is a journalist exploring the intersection of fashion, theology, and justice. But everyone has an intimate relationship with clothing. Mm -hmm. It's the closest thing to you. It's like, other than maybe a lover, like if you're married, like everyone else sees your clothing when they see you. Your clothing is always between you and anyone else. And that's such an intimate thing mm. that I think the average person, when they walk into a museum, they might be like, I don't I don't know, I don't really understand that painting or that sculpture. But they see clothing and they at least have some sense of like, 
I know something mm-hmm. about this. I have some kind of personal experience with this thing. Mm-hmm. Our conversation with Whitney is coming right up after we say some really kind, wonderful stuff about our patrons, Religion News Service. RNS is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. Full disclosure, I'm an editor there. And a pretty darn good one. Check out the newsletters, the opinion pieces from all different perspectives and belief systems. From Simran Jeet Singh's Articles of Faith to Jonathan Merritt's column on faith and culture. From Omar Suleiman's Islam Beyond Phobia and Jana Reese's Funking Satehood, there's something for everyone. For the best in global religion reporting, visit religionnews.com. And while you're in front of your computer, contact us. We want to hear from you. Tweet to us at hashtag SaveByTheCity, and you can find the larger conversation happening there. Today, we're excited to be here with Whitney Bauk. Whitney is a journalist for Fashionista, and she writes about fashion, sustainability, and environmental justice. She's also our friend in real life. And yes... She always looks super cool. Welcome to the show, Whitney. Hi. Hi, Whitney. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah. Happy to join you from my closet. (laughs) (laughs) Which is maybe a good place to record a conversation about fashion. Exactly. (laughs) It was just because I wanted to be surrounded by clothing at all times. Perfect. Well, I wanted to start with the most important thing, which is what are the fashion trends that you're seeing right now for this season? In terms of trends, I mean, it's probably a lot of what you know just from looking around the world, right? Like, none of us are getting Mm -hmm. dressed in fancy party dresses. So there's a lot Mm -hmm. of things that are incorporating comfort dressing. It's a lot of, like, literally what we do for Zoom, right? Where it's, like, a nice shirt on the top and, like, sweatpants on the bottom. Mm -hmm. Tie-dye continues Mm -hmm. to be huge. Patchwork continues to be a thing, partly because people are getting into upcycling, especially the youths. I've been doing some reporting on TikTok recently, and now I'm like, I know so much about TikTok teens and what they're into. And one of the things they're into is like upcycling stuff from thrift stores. So those are some Mm. of the things. As I said, we're friends in real life, but I actually don't think I know how you got into fashion or what made you interested in it at all. So tell us a little bit about kind of how you came to be doing what you're doing. Yeah, it's kind of a winding journey. I wanted to study art in undergrad. I'd always loved creative things, but I grew up around a a lot of nonprofit workers. And so I had a really strong sense of like poverty and development. And it just felt really hard to do anything that I couldn't see as like really, really practically useful in the world. And somehow I decided that like photography was that and other creative things weren't that. (laughs) And then throughout Hmm. the process of being in college, I sort of re-examined my relationship with fashion, which I had always loved but had decided like wasn't really important mm-hmm. work at some point. Not because anyone really told me that. But I didn't know anyone who was doing that work, and it was often talked about in a way that made it seem kind of frivolous. Mm-hmm. And then getting mm-hmm. to college, I, I started re-examining it. And honestly, at the time, like looking at what the Bible said about clothing, I wrote a huge paper on that when I was an underclassman, and it really shifted things for me. It went from feeling like, oh, this is something, you know, you you can sort of get away with caring about to being like, this is something that really matters, especially if you're a person for whom the Bible has like any meaning. Like it's just all hmm. over the Bible, these references to clothing and, and how important it is. And also once you start looking at it and you understand anything about how the fashion supply chain works, you start seeing hmm. that there's so many justice issues that are sort of woven into the very fabric of the things that we wear. So You start seeing labor exploitation, and then once you understand the sort of human side of it, 
the environmental side of it comes in really quickly because you can't take care of people without taking care of the environment. Like, it's just too interconnected. Mm-hmm. So I had started a fashion blog when I was an undergrad, and it was right after I started that the Rana Plaza collapse happened in Bangladesh in 2013. And that was a real wake-up call. And now I look back and realize it was a wake-up call for my whole industry. Mm. But at the time, I was at this little college that didn't have a fashion program, so I didn't know other people who were working in it. But now looking back, I would say like that was actually a, a wake-up call for a lot of the industry to say, like, people are dying to make cheap t-shirts. That doesn't make any sense, and we have to figure out how to change that. For people who are listening and don't know what you're talking about, what was it that happened in Bangladesh? Yes, sorry, getting ahead of myself. So in 2013, there was a factory collapse in Rana Plaza in Dhaka, Bangladesh, which is where a lot of the world's clothing is made, especially clothing that we wear here in the U.S. And it was the deadliest garment industry accident in garment industry history. Mm -hmm. So it was thousands of people who died and who were injured. If you look up pictures of it, it's crazy. This whole building just collapsed. Part of what happened there was the building wasn't made to be a factory. And this is how a lot of the factories work in the parts of the world where most clothing is made. Those factory conditions aren't safe. And mm-hmm. the brands that were making clothing there were largely supplying to, you know, Western nations. So I was living in Ireland at the time. And even though I've mostly been a thrifter my whole life, I had just gone shopping at this little store called Pennies there, which is like fast fashion kind of like Forever 21, and bought a pair of, like, sunglasses. And that was one of the companies that was implicated Mm. in this collapse. Like, they were producing things there. So it felt—I felt really personally implicated, where I was like, I'm a part of this system. I'm helping feed Mm -hmm. this system. And and the sort of really low prices and the expectation that we can always get new stuff, we always want to be on trend— leads to these kinds of conditions because we're not paying enough to make sure that these things don't happen. And so mm-hmm. that that really set me on a journey to figure out how to understand how the industry really functions and to write in about it in a way that keeps the industry accountable and helps educate people about what's really happening. Going back to, this is going <laughs> way back, <laughs> to something you said earlier about you know, growing up in an environment where you were surrounded by people doing a lot of nonprofit work and maybe fashion and clothing were seen as frivolous. And then you got to undergrad and had an opportunity to find out what the Bible says about clothing. And I'm trying to rack my brain about what the Bible says about clothing. And the only thing I'm thinking of is Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat. <laughs> Right. And some references to pearls. <laughs> as well as like the fig leaf <laughs> in Genesis. And perhaps this is due to my lack of biblical knowledge. But like, what does the Bible say about clothing and fashion? How would you articulate like a theology of fashion to people who might be tempted to write off fashion as either frivolous, wasteful, Vanity. like too worldly, vanity, or just like not even something that we need to think about one way or the other as people of faith? Yeah, so I think that that is the attitude in plenty of places. But I think the thing that I came away from that sort of intense study of the Bible with was just understanding that clothing has a lot of symbolic and communicative value and that that's totally present in the Bible and it's not shunned or like seen as a bad thing. So everything Mm -hmm. from like sort of the priest's vestments in the Old Testament and how much detail there is in all of that and how that's expected to be a part of worship and a part of engaging with God to things in the New Testament, like when Jesus is transfigured and his clothing is transfigured along with him. And when Mm -hmm. he's sort of expressing the glory of God in one of the most intense ways that we see it in a very visual way, like his clothing is wrapped up in that. His clothing is not separate from that at all. And even like using the Adam and Eve example, I think people have sort of used that as a way to say like fashion is connected to sin inherently. But what I see when I look at that is like there Mm -hmm. was sin that happened 
And then God made the first clothing. The first time we see human beings clothed, God is the designer and God is the creator of that clothing. And then says, like, you shall be clothed (laughs) from now Mm -hmm. on. Like, that is the state Mm -hmm. in which I'm, like, sending you off into the world. I think the way that fashion just gets left out of the conversation is is honestly really sad because there's a lot of beauty Mm -hmm. in it, how it's talked about in the Bible, and even how it's just used, again, to communicate in church history and in fashion history and in art history. Like, I had conversations with some of my art professors when I was, you know, really wrestling with this as a college student, being like, why isn't why isn't any of this in my art history textbooks? Like, this is such a rich part of visual culture and visual history. And I mean, one of the answers is like, yeah, this is considered women's work, which is funny because a lot of clothing is made by men. A lot of the like designers that people call geniuses are men. But when it's women's work, it's a lot easier to write out of history and be like, oh, that's mm-hmm. not that doesn't really matter. That doesn't belong in museums and whatever. I mean, what Mm -hmm. we're seeing with current art history is that fashion exhibitions at at art museums do Mm -hmm. so well because fashion is something that everyone can sort of relate to. Like, not everyone is going to own a painting in their lifetime. Not everyone is going to, like, have an intimate relationship with painting. But everyone has an intimate relationship with clothing. Mm -hmm. It's the closest thing to you. It's like, other than maybe a lover, like, if you're married, like, everyone else sees your clothing when they see you. Your clothing is always between you and anyone else. And that's such an intimate thing mm. that I think the average person, when they walk into a museum, they might be like, I don't, I don't know, I don't really understand that painting or that sculpture. But they see clothing and they at least have some sense of like, I know something mm-hmm. about this. I have some kind of personal experience with this thing. Mm-hmm. I can imagine some listeners, and I, I feel this way too as well, often in conversations about fashion. Like my, when I hear the word fashion, my mind immediately goes to like high mm-hmm couture fashion and the sense that to really be invested in fashion, you have to be a relatively wealthy (laughs) person. You have to have a lot of disposable income. You have to be part of a certain class or even have to be part of communities where you would have an opportunity to like show off your high-end fashion. And one thing I really love about your work, Whitney, is that I feel like you make fashion accessible and take it outside of like the Vogue conversation. So talk a little bit about how fashion matters to like everybody. And how do we break out of some of the classist and kind of corporate elements of conversations about fashion? Yeah, well, I wonder if one of the trip ups here can be language. So fashion actually does communicate a different thing than clothing. No one says they're like a clothing reporter, but maybe it would be more (laughs) accurate to say. And when you look at the industry, I mean, it's it's a really fascinating industry because it cuts across so many other lines. You know, it involves farming, it involves Mm -hmm. agriculture, it involves transportation, Mm -hmm. it involves like raw materials, things like plastics that that gets into like big oil and drilling, which gets into Mm -hmm. climate change. You can use fashion to talk about almost anything. And then on a day-to-day, I mean, I think it's just the kind of thing where it's like people think that they can opt out, but Mm -hmm. you're never opting out. Like, you're always making a choice. You're communicating something about your values and you're communicating Mm -hmm. something about what you care Mm -hmm. about. When I talk about people being engaged in fashion, like, I'm not asking for everyone to care about the runway. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm interested in the Mm -hmm. runway because I, you know, I have a background in art. I'm interested in design. I think it's fun. But I don't think you need to care about that to understand the sort of ramifications of this industry and of this medium as it functions in your own life. You know, as we talked about this, like, very intimate thing that you're carrying on your body. And I Mm -hmm. think especially for for religious people, there's so much connection to justice. Mm -hmm. There has to be some recognition of the way that that's tied to your values. And this is true across a range of faiths. Mm -hmm. The idea, like, if your clothing is made 
in an unjust way, you are wearing that injustice on your skin in a way that I think is really powerful and should give us pause and should make us take that really seriously. It's not uncommon for you and I to talk about this, Whitney, and I walk away with this like deep conviction, like Whitney's right. (laughs) I need to change. She's convicted my heart. Oh, but there's like a sale at that one store. Well, I guess my convictions will have to wait. Yeah. Like, I mean, fast fashion is so popular because it's so easy and it's mm-hmm. so accessible and available. And affordable. And so how would you, and affordable, right. And mm-hmm. so how would you, just like hypothetically, someone who's genuinely interested in conversations about sustainability and justice and just more generally how our consumer habits affect people, like actual flesh and blood people around the world and want to make changes, like where do they start? Like how how do you make sustainability concerns accessible? I mean, I think the easiest thing is to just, and maybe you would say this isn't easy, but it's just uh, don't buy new stuff. And this is one of the reasons that I like, <laughs> this is one of the reasons I like working in fashion as opposed to say food, because I, it's only been pretty recently for me mm. that I've started trying to understand more of impacts of my food and like I'll be totally honest with you like there's so many habits that I have not changed like I'm cutting I've cut back on meat but in terms of like where things Mm -hmm. are sourced it's really hard because I have to buy food and it is more expensive usually to buy the organic with fashion that's not true like you don't actually have to buy new stuff all the time like you really don't right and even when you do need something you don't have to buy it new like there's so many options for secondhand and for resale whether you're like, I need something that's 99 cents and I'm going to go to Goodwill or you're like, I want to get a luxury handbag and you go to the real real. Like there's a secondhand mm-hmm. option for almost everything other than underwear, which like you can yeah. just get organic cotton underwear. And it's Let's, I wanna, what are your tips for finding cool stuff secondhand? Oh, I love that. Yeah. So I've been thrifting since I was in middle school long before I had any like ethics associated with it. I just thought it was, I mean, it was what I could afford and I thought it was interesting and you could find unique stuff. I would say mm-hmm. when when in-person thrifting is available to you, which is like maybe not possible for everyone right now in COVID, but when that's an option, I'd say go in, look at everything, like look through the entire rack because that's how you find the good so stuff. So overwhelming. All the weird stuff. <laughs> yeah, but it's like you just you just go in and instead of thinking like I'm going to go in and I, you know, I want exactly that, mm-hmm. like you go in and you see what's there. And maybe you even know like I need jeans. So you can go to the jeans section mm-hmm. first, but then you look through every piece and see what works and try things on. Like even if it's kind of weird. You just start by trying it on. I would mm-hmm. say in COVID, there's also a ton of online resale. So you want like really cool, interesting stuff. There's tons of vintage shops on Instagram. If you're just like, I just need like really straightforward things or I want a really wide selection, Thread Up is really great for that. The Real Real and Vestier Co. are great for more like luxury if you want to invest in sort of a higher end good, but you don't want to buy it new. There's a ton Mm -hmm. of different ways to do secondhand. This is so true of you, Whitney. And maybe this is partially why like thrifting feels intimidating to me. But I think like one of the genuinely cool things about buying secondhand or from thrift stores is that there's more opportunity for like expressing yourself instead of just like taking whatever the popular sweater Mm -hmm. is. Totally. At Madewell or Zara or whatever, like the way that you can put together an outfit can be really unique and creative. Totally. To be fair, like if trends are part of our problem, which part of me would argue they are, that's part of what fuels such quick consumption, thrift stores are a really good way to like kind of step Mm -hmm. out of that to some degree. Right. And so when you do need to buy new or want to buy new or for people who, you know, are just probably not going to get into the thrifting thing, how does a person really start paying attention to their fashion purchases and what to look for in terms of brands and that sort of thing? 
the main things are like do your homework, buy less. And when you do buy, buy something that's really made to last mm-hmm. that you're going to mm-hmm. want for a long time. So like investing in better things, which I think can mm-hmm. can sound to people like it comes back to the class mm-hmm. thing, right? Of like, is that actually accessible from a price standpoint? But we all spend less on clothing now than we did in like the 50s. Yeah. Like there used to be an expectation that you invest in something better and you just wear it to right. death. Like you wear it until mm-hmm. it falls apart. And I think it can feel really hard to people to be like, oh, it's so much work or, you know, I don't really want to buy secondhand. But again, I'd say like the more you learn about supply chain ethics, the more it's it's hard to unknow. Yeah. Like if this feels like this is directly mm-hmm. tied to some like 16 year old girl dying, like that just doesn't make any sense. Like I do not need a T-shirt mm-hmm. that bad. Like I can wear what I have. Mm. And so if you can try to see the connections, like where did this come from? Understand like p- hands touched these things that we're we're wearing, all of us right now. Like, I think we can have this sense of like everything's mass produced in factories, but I've been to the factories where this stuff is yeah. made and like there are human beings yeah. there. Mm-hmm. The piece of clothing, by the time it gets to you in a store, has passed through so many hands. I think if we can try to not have this sort of super individualist idea of ourselves, which I think is one of the right. sins of the American church anyway, <laughs> but understand how we're connected in this interconnected sort of web of relationships in the world. It's really going to help us as we try to make those decisions moving forward. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Yeah, Whitney. So- it, it would be more fun to have this conversation in person, but I'm glad that we could do this so that so many other people could hear your wisdom and the knowledge that you've gathered as a journalist (laughs) and yeah everybody should go follow Whitney Balk at unwrinkling on all the social media channels including TikTok no pressure (laughs) yeah this is like dang I gotta get my act together and actually do something on there thank you it's been it's been really fun love talking to you guys from the closet (laughs) yes I was really struck by like what she said about how many times clothing is mentioned in the Bible Mm -hmm. and just that at the very least, like it matters. And I think it's a creational good. Yeah. But there are so many ways, like so many other realms of human culture, like there are so many ways it's gone wrong. And also when she said how many hands have touched your clothes before they get to you, it, it made it made this piece of clothing feel heavier in a way, you know? And that you really can get by with less or just from the beginning, investing in pieces that you can wear over and over again and you want to wear over and over again, Um, which brings us back to your leather jacket. I mean, you know, I think you had framed it as kind of this like, wow, I spent a lot of money on this one piece of clothing. Yeah, it felt super reckless at the time. But But if I do the math, like that's like sense every time I've worn that jacket, you know. So the lesson from this is your leather jacket was the right thing to buy, even (laughs) though you didn't know it at the time. (laughs) Yes, it's one of the less regrettable choices I've made shopping, I guess. But there have been many that I would say that I regret. Well, Roxy, I think it's time to put a bow on this episode. Yeah, I think we can button it up. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'd love to hear what you think about our podcast. You can get in touch with us by tweeting using the hashtag SaveByTheCity. Have recommendations for topics or guests? We want to hear those too. Beyond tweeting, you can also email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. 
Say by the City is a religion news service production. The executive producer is Jay Woodward, and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. Chaz Russo put together our look, and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Caitlin Beatty and Roxy Stone. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. We nailed the ending. We did. (laughs) I love it.